Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Human wholeness is often defined as the unity of mind, body, and spirit. Emotional abuse, rejection, and trauma fracture this union because a false shame message gets stored in our body that disconnects us from the sense of being unconditionally loved. Those are the words of my guest today, Jackson McKenzie. They're from his new book, Whole Again, Healing Your Heart and Rediscovering Your True Self After Toxic Relationships and Emotional Abuse. In it, he offers readers the tools needed to heal from abuse and find love and acceptance as they continue on their journey towards wholeness. It's a great book. and We had a great conversation about it. I give you Jackson McKenzie. Jackson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. Whole Again is the book is you've just written, Healing Your Heart and Rediscovering Your True Self After Toxic Relationships and Emotional Abuse. So you... you have you write here from not just sort of a there was that remember that there was these commercials the hair club for men and the guy said i'm not just the president of the hair club for men i'm also a client you write here not just as someone who's detached in some kind of clinical sense from these issues you've you've experienced some severe heartache yourself and in the wake of that have been kind of on a journey to understand that and help other people come to grips with those sorts of experiences right yeah, that's been the goal with my work is to kind of be more of a um, conversational, uh, non-clinical resource for people going through these types of situations. Um, I'm not a professional. My background is in computer science. So I always recommend um, whenever um, folks come to me with questions or asking for help, I always recommend seeking out um, professional help as well. And and that, I mean, you obviously done a lot of work in, in in those arenas on your own. It, it seems like you've not just been in the therapeutic process, you've become a student of it. I mean, you, you really, it seems like some insights there and, and contributions that you experienced in that journey really got you interested on in, in at least what goes on on the other side of the couch, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, as our community grew, um, for the book and the one, the book before this was called Psychopath Free. And there was a community there for people um, coming out of abusive relationships, um, particularly in the cluster B spectrum, like narcissists, sociopaths, um, and borderline. And uh, we started, the community just grew so fast, um, kind of faster than we were really able to keep up with. But it got to the point where I was um, hearing from hundreds and thousands and um, and our Facebook page had grown up to almost uh, half a million followers. So you're getting a lot of feedback and stories and ideas from people. And the more I um, started interacting and working with people and hearing about where they were coming from and what they were dealing with, um, the more I felt sort of compelled and inspired to start working on this second book, um, especially with some of the patterns that were coming out of those stories. Do you think that I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure the explosive growth of that community gave you a sense of, hey, okay, I'm not alone in this. And do you think that's part of the viral dimension of the community? That, that's My guess is it's a lonely, even though there's so many people, I mean, that's a huge Facebook community, right? And yet 
you can have a group of people that's so large and yet so isolated. Yeah, exactly. And I think coming across people who um, who have been through something similar and are able to sort of describe you kind of maybe when you're describing it to friends or family or um, things like that, that you sort of, you always, you'll get a nice sympathetic um, response and understanding. Um, but I think when you come across other folks in such a specific community, you have a lot of those aha moments where everything really clicks where you're like, oh my God, this is like word for word what I experienced and what I'm trying to heal from. Um, and so I think it gives uh, not just that sense of, you know, finding other people, that sense of community, but also a sense of hope that there's so many other people out there that um, you're not alone and that it's something that you can recover from. One of the things, you know, I find in online dating, which is so tough for I friend, tons of friends that are involved in online dating. And it seems like a very stressful, anxiety ridden kind of experience. And I think some of that is just because if you just kind of meet someone, you click with their party, go out a few times, there's not so much pressure on the front end, but it's almost like you weed through all these people and it's like a job interview, that first date. And then if it goes badly, you feel like, what am I, a bad shopper? Am I an uneducated consumer? And some of us, I wonder if that, if something about healing from people in, in these borderline situations, you know, when somebody's, it's a really toxic relationship, is like that on steroids. Like, what's wrong with me that I that I got with this person? What you know? Why didn't I? You know, I wonder how much of the isolation is the shame of like, why didn't I see? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a. It can be a really isolating feeling because you end up in this situation, and a lot of the times after the fact. Um, people will talk about how it seems like, oh, you know, it was so obvious. I should have seen it coming. Um, I should have picked up on the red flags. And I think what we find and what a lot of this, uh, the first book was a lot about identifying the red flags and uh, sort of an external focus on the perpetrator. And Whole Again is really intended to turn the attention inward. Um, what we found and what I've found in my own personal experience and with a lot of the people I've worked with, especially uh, when it comes to things like codependency, is that the um, relationships that they keep falling into have a lot of really similar patterns. And every time it happens, it's sort of like you mentioned that job interview, they say, oh my gosh, I must be bad at interviewing. And it keeps happening over and over again to the point where they completely lose their ability to trust in themselves. And that, that shame, that feeling of, I can't do anything right. I, I just have, you know, the, the wrong ability to pick the right person. And, um, and it really can just leave a person feeling alone. So our goal is to sort of resolve that loop that kind of keeps happening. It's almost at, at a point, it almost becomes self-sabotaging. There's, there was an episode a couple of years ago, with the walking dead. It was a standalone episode with this character, Morgan, who had severe PTSD and he winds up, he's just a killing machine and, and he he's just like a, so traumatized and he comes across this forensic psychologist, psychologist <laughs> who's a survivor in this zombie apocalypse. And there's this line is they, they develop this strange friendship. Uh, it's, I mean, at first, you know, Morgan is trying to kill him and then, and he convinces Morgan that there's hope because we get better. You know that 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 he's seen it, like he's seen people that are trauma, and and you talk about the importance of that insight, like when it's gut wrenching, and you're severely traumatized it, through, and the heartbreak seems like it ne never would go away. But there is this, you came to this realization that, that, that our bodies, our ourselves, are designed to heal, and 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 that it can really happen. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean that's such a, it's a great example because the, it seems that you come out of it and you think, oh, this is just the way I am now and I'm stuck. I've been 
sort of permanently hurt from what happened and I'm never going to be the same. And um, realizing that that's really not the case, that there's been a lot of people who have been through um, different types of trauma that impact us in different ways. I think a lot of what the book uh, covers is complex trauma. So those are more like really deep-seated emotional um, traumas that tend to come from rejections and inadequacies and betrayals um, that really stay stuck inside of a person. And it's, it's sort of like, it's trying to protect you from it happening again, but it's sort of like, if you have an alarm, that's always going off a fire alarm, that's always going off. It doesn't help you because then when the fire actually happens, the alarm is always going, going off. So you're sort of numb to it. Um, and so the goal here is to sort of help people get in touch with those body sensations that are going on, especially um, the core, the stomach, the heart, um, anything that we, we hear a lot of survivors talk about numbness, uh, emptiness, and these feelings that they just can't describe, but they know something's not right. And so I really encourage people to turn towards those feelings and start to let the body um, tell you what it's experiencing. And it's certainly not really going to be pleasant, um, but it's something that as the more that it happens, the um, easier it becomes to start understanding and building a healthier relationship with ourselves. Yeah, this is like that book. It came out recently in the past couple of years, right? The Body Keeps Score, I think it's yeah. called, about trauma and, and how it, 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 you have these body memories in the central nervous system, but then when you get these feelings in your gut or, or in your throat or in your chest, I mean, your frontal lobe, your brain wants to make sense of it, right? right. Like, it, like, and so it starts telling a story about what this is. And you say it's hard because you gotta your story. Our stories are important, the true ones we can tell ourselves, or the hopeful ones. But there are certain stories that are self defeating, and oftentimes. Because your brain, your frontal lobe doesn't know what to do with these feelings. It makes up a story to try to make sense of them. And oftentimes it's distracting you from actually getting where if you can just feel the feeling and realize, okay, this is a body trauma. This is a memory. It's not happening again. Or, or, or there's not some story repeating. In front. It's, ju it's just something that's kind of caught in my, it's like a glitch in the matrix. It's, you know, it's a deja vu kind of glitch in the matrix kind of feeling that, that I can I can sit with and understand if, if I can take the time, right? Yeah, that's a really great way to put it. That glitch in the matrix is something, and your body is trying to tell you something is not right. And I think what usually people will find is that despite their every effort, especially if this type of wounding happened in childhood or something like that, that the same thing keeps happening over and over again. And then the story reinforces itself and it says, see, this always happens. And it almost, it gives that, inner wounding this reason to continue existing um it's it's reinforcing itself um which is really if you think about it from the body and mind standpoint it's kind of smart it's staying in control all the time by sort of proving itself um but once you, like you said you just start slowing down and focusing on that sensation and less around the story because i think what we find when people have been traumatized and dealt with situations like that is that they can repeat their story word for word, exactly what happened, especially in these um, types of traumatic relationships, they can say, this bad thing happened, um, this wasn't fair, or this left me feeling X, Y, Z. But it's all this very kind of like heightened storytelling. And those sensations in the body are subsequently a bit numbed out. Um, and so if we can start moving the focus from those stories as important as they can be to help identify what happened and move out of the situation, um, like you said, they're not um, they're not based in the present moment anymore. And that's really what trauma often is, is a um, past wounding or past fear that just stays stuck. Um, 
in the present moment. Yeah, I, I wonder if the tragedy of you know dealing with post traumatic stress, right? If it mean if part of being human is you don't live in the kind of the eternal now, right? Really? Like <laughs> you you look back on what's happened and you look forward to what you hope, and that orients your present. It's like with traumatic stuff, like the past never becomes past. It's always kind of impinging on the present, right? And, right. and, and, and so you can't tell a meaningful story. Part of how we exist and have flourishing lives is we tell ourselves stories, stories that make sense and have meaning. And, and it's sort of, it's like writer's block, right? You can't, you can't tell a story when, when the past and the present, you know, won't kind of be pulled apart. Yeah, especially if it's refusing to let go. I think a quote I've heard um, about PTSD is that it's not that the person's refusing to let go of the past. It's that the past is refusing to let go of the person because you'll find people that will go to therapy for years and they'll try to work through it. But whatever it is in their body is like refusing to reveal itself completely. And that can be an extremely frustrating feeling because you're trying your best to get better. And it's something that almost feels out of your control um, to get better. And that's where I've really found um, that that mindfulness around those body sensations, uh, they can be slow and it takes a lot of patience, but it really does get the ball rolling in terms of those wounds starting to almost unnumb um, or melt like an ice cube. And, and it's a sense like that, it, that, that sort of like the thinking needs to take place in the right sequence. Like oftentimes when we're in the traumatic heartbreak, you know, when, when the past won't let us go, we, we do this kind of furious analyzing and thinking on the front end, which blocks the mindfulness, as opposed to the time for thinking and reflection, right, is post-mindfulness. That now, now that when you understand these body memories, then you can think about them and explore them intellectually or cognitively. But, but if you do that, that, that cognitive reflection on the front end before the mindfulness and stuff, you, you're, you're actually you're doing like self-deception sometimes. Yeah, exactly. You end up, and that's what we find a lot of times is that storytelling mode can almost become um, unhelpful because um, even in describing like the feeling, it's this very analytical, rigid way of thinking, which is the natural way of thinking when trauma and anxiety are occurring is the brain is in this very like analytical, this must have happened because of X, Y, Z. You'll see all the time people saying, oh, this relationship must have occurred because my relationship with one of my parents is like this and therefore that's the reason this happened. And it's, it's all like very logical, almost like thinking like a computer. Um, and those things may be helpful and they may be relevant. I think they're, um, they're very important to kind of getting to the bottom of why these things happen, but they can prevent you from actually feeling what that actual sensation is in the body. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, this is the thing of what it means to be a human being, right? We're often addicted to causality. We walk around, oh, well, this must have caused this. Right? And, and, and a lot of times, everything we know as we, as, as, you know, hard scientists progress more and more and we learn more about the way they, so much of our understanding of causality is just, it's just kind of mythology. We just want the world to feel like it makes sense. And that happens psychologically too, right? We just see causality everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. We have to make sense of our surroundings, especially the ones that are, not so good because otherwise, you know, that's a pretty chaotic and scary world. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If 
if the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going, and you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Wittenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. So part of it, what makes like a central running theme of your book, you talk about and you you, add, you take this tool very helpfully for difference for codependence or for people with, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress stuff or complex post-traumatic stress, stress. You talk about the core wound versus the protective self. Right. And the, and how the protective self often is is it's trying to sort of protect the wounded self. Right. But the problem is it it's sort of it becomes a sort of. Uh, you know, it often self justifies or focuses on externals as opposed to internal. So it's it's almost like a protective th- thing that becomes an autoimmune disorder, right? Like yeah, <laughs> it's sort of it. you know, it's it's meant to protect you, but it often it, it, it's killing you. <laughs> it, it, it's it's over protect. It's protecting in a way that's actually not treating the illness, just messing with tangentially the symptoms. Right. It's it's holding on to the thing that's actually causing the need for the protective self in the first place. And I wish that autoimmune analogy, I wish I had put that in the book. That's a really, uh, <laughs> that's a great way to put it. So um, I, I think you know, you'll find a lot of times, and this is what I talk about in identifying the protective self is um, it's really just based on distractions. It's like, I've got something wrong with me and I'm going to prove that there's not something wrong with me. And so whether that be through relationships or um, addictions or um, workaholics and accomplishing as much as possible, getting lost in these really maladaptive daydreams, those kinds of things that keep you away from it. Um, But once you get closer to it, you realize, like you said, it's been holding on to this um, wounding that happened however long ago and holding it inside of you. And that, in order to protect you, is in a way just continuing to kind of lash you over and over again um, with that part that originally hurts so much. And it's an attempt to prevent it from happening again. But I use this analogy in the book is like, if, if I hit you on the head with a frying pan, which I wouldn't do, you don't need to keep hitting yourself on the head with a frying pan every day to remind you that that doesn't feel good. You just, you know, you're able to more put that into the memory of like, okay, that, that didn't work out well. And I'm, I'm not going to let that happen again. And that's what we want to do here is not just like try to release the wound and be done with it and be like, oh, forget the whole thing ever happened. And it's really about listening to what was absorbed, what it's trying to protect you from and taking on those protective qualities that are needed and releasing 
the wound and the maladaptive qualities that are really not needed and not helping anymore. Yeah, this is the key about the, the, the good thing about defense mechanisms, right? Even the worst ones. They they show that your body your life hasn't quit on itself, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's 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 it's. I mean, some are better than others. You know, humor is better than heroin. But I mean, but, but but these things are all defense mechanisms, right? That are trying to keep going in some in some way. There's the book called Abish Child by a guy named Brennan Manning, who's he passed away, but he was a priest who talked about like trying to find self acceptance, and he talked about the imposter that oftentimes develops in childhood to protect our childhood wounding. Mm-hmm. And and yet the imposter again, it's like a self sabotager. It becomes like the protective self. It becomes the autoimmune disease, it, oftentimes in adulthood. And he says when you discover your imposter, you usually either want to ignore it or choke it. But I, I, but I, the problem is that's you. It, you know, you see, you, you have to love it to a manageable size. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's not so 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 the the little wounded protected self isn't calling all the shots. Uh, but 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 it is telling you some useful information maybe about the wounding, but it's not. It makes a good servant, but a lousy master. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's really true. It shouldn't be running the show because it's sort of like a a workaround that was put in place by the body and mind, and maybe it works for a little while. Um, but what I've found is that life has a really good way of kind of continually causing it to fail and causing it great frustration and. At first, to the person dealing with it, it can be really frustrating because they can be like, what the heck? I'm trying so hard. I'm like looking out for all the red flags in my relationships. and I still end up with this horrible person who treats me badly or freaks out at the end of our relationship. And those things keep happening over and over again until finally that protector sort of crumbles. It's no longer in that master position. And I think what we come to find is that's more of a blessing than a curse that that happened. Um it's it's destined to fail because it's not it's not doing things um, in a way that's really helpful to the person who's suffering. Um, and and as we start to see it fail, and we especially use mindfulness, we can become the master of what's going on. And like you said, maybe those feelings and those messages are still there, especially in the beginning, pretty strong. But the brain is very very fluid, and the more we practice that mindfulness, and we more we practice identifying with the person who's noticing what's going on inside, um, the less it starts to run the show. You know, in this whole process, you ta- you narrate throughout the book of sort of identifying the protective self, right? The autoimmune disorder self, you know, and deconstructing it so that you can get to the core wound. It seems like this is something anybody in any 12-step or recovery program would just know. Like, this is why the people that experience great success there tend to tend to experience that, right? Because it's these truths are just all over the place, but it's hard, right? Sometimes for people that aren't in, in some kind of recovery process or 12 step group or something to just find communities of people where like, like this online community you started where these people, it's often very difficult to, to, to interact at that level of authenticity and to be that vulnerable and saying that, gosh, my life feels like out of control and a mess. And, I'm so guarded and, and defended and, and it, like, it's just not, you know, it, it, it's tough to find those people at a bar or Barnes and Noble or the country. Okay, guys, let's talk about our core wounds. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's yeah, that's just so difficult, right? Right. Yeah. yeah I think um, I th- the 12 steps are, uh, I think, a really great resource for addiction. And like you said, the process seems like pretty universal. Um, you look at 
Um, people will talk about the concept of the ego, the false self, and that's all, I think, very similar to the protective self. And I think in AA, they would call that, um, you know, the spiritual defects and maladies, um, all of those things and um, identifying what those are and how they're working and how they're running your life. It really is a universal theme. And I think where we do see lacking is um, in the community for people dealing with these uh, very isolating emotional issues where they feel alone and they don't understand what's happening or why, and they don't know how to get better even if they want to. Um, so definitely hoping that we can start to um, build out those communities and have more places for people to share that. You talk about in the book this experience when you're driving, you were driving and you're listening to some like hip hop mix that your sister made or something, right? And all of a sudden you had this kind of transcendent experience that you could feel her unconditional love for you. And you're so you're, you're and you say, look, I don't want to like proselytize anybody here, but most people have found this in these great spiritual traditions. I mean, I, I wonder is something there like this idea that like that the world ha- make, has a purpose and meaning and that it's for you. Like ultimately that, that, that the world is not a place that's that, that lacks meaning, but, but that, you can find meaning in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that experience for me was extremely weird. I had been an agnostic my whole life, um, extremely skeptical. And I was sort of at my wits end with trying to understand what was going on, why my body seemed to have been like turning on me, um, despite my every effort to do the right things. And um, when I felt that sense of that unconditional love, which I'm sure is described as like God, the universe, however um, people choose to describe it, it was it was pretty hard for me to say like, oh, wow, that was, that was nothing because it was like an extremely powerful sense that um, guided a lot of the rest of my journey and what I um, put in this book. Um, that's not to say I don't know that spirituality is really um, a prerequisite to healing. I think people can find their own way. Um, and using logical means and um and and that's that's great i do think though that um that experience of understanding something bigger than ourselves is really powerful and seeing like you said the world is becomes less of a scary place and more of like this just place of unlimited possibilities that you just feel rather than this separate kind of contracted being you feel a part of you feel like you are it which is um it's really cool and very fun and just makes everything feel a lot lighter. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've heard it said like love is the opposite of control, right? And so much of our, when we're in these deep wounded, traumatized places, right, we try to control and it's almost like it makes it worse, right? The person that's in quicksand and, 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 and fighting to get out of it, right, actually <laughs> accelerates their descent, right? It, it, it's a, it, the, the, the paradox of the thing, it's okay, what's going to keep me alive longer is inactivity, yeah. What's going to keep me alive is is not being frenetic and fight, but but that seems so counterintuitive. Likely, likewise with the mindfulness stuff and this and sort of opening up versus constrict. Everything about us in those wounded places feels like it wants to control, constrict, act instead of open up and release. Yeah, yeah, it's doing the opposite of what you want. And the crazy thing is, at the end of this journey, what I found and what so many other people that I've worked with have found is you expect this thing, this like really bad feeling that you just like are ready to let go of. And you're like, oh, perfect. Like I'm done. And it's a lot of times what it is, is that there's this fear of actually letting that love and happiness in again. Um, Because the last time that vulnerability and that lightness was felt, something really bad happened. So if you have that control 
and you have that contraction, you can at least convince yourself that you won't let it happen again. And so I thought it was really weird that at the end of all of that, it was really myself preventing me um, from letting those lighter, um, really nice sensations come back. Like I specifically felt them um, in my chest and core and heart area that I could, in my mindfulness, um, got to a point where I could decide I'm going to let that be open and free the way it used to feel. And it feels amazing. It's like, oh, it's just like bursting with this really nice energy. And my whole body just feels like back to normal and light and reconnected. And then another part of me just takes over and it's like, nope, we're not going to do that. Um, and so that can be a real challenge at the end of the journey. You talk about in the book that, that, that there's key difference between shame and guilt and how shame is guilt is about feeling regret or remorse or, or feeling bad about something we've done, but shame is more comprehensive. It's, it's feeling bad about who we are. And, and that is such a, a difficult subverting process, right? Because it, it, it I mean, Brene Brown, you know, talks about how, you know, you, the thing is like, nobody likes talking about shame and the par- the paradox is that the less you talk about it, the more of it you have. Right. And, and so, so much of the protective self that you talk about, like this self-defeating protective self, right. It's, it's in this dance with shame and it's, it's sort of trying, but, and yeah, it's only when you come to grips with the shame that you can get to the core wounding and actually begin to have the healing. But the problem is it's like, it's like ripping the bandaid off. It's going to hurt. It's going to be a little worse before it gets better. Yeah. It's going to be really unpleasant because the body and mind would not have put together that whole workaround unless you experience something extremely painful because it's trying to prevent you from feeling all of that. So yeah, you I, I heard recently that when you for it. when you when you break up with someone, and not even a normal breakup, the mm-hmm. dopamine is like it's like basically going for it's the same experience chemically as like heroin withdrawal. I mean, there's a yeah, reason why like you feel sick. Pain. Yeah, yeah, it really and it does a number on your body, and especially shame um, is is shown to be one of the most painful and unpleasant emotions to feel, and people will feel it differently in their body, which is why everyone will have these different workarounds. And like you said, some of them seem like kind of okay. Like maybe like, you know, you're, you joke around about everything all the time, or you're a perfectionist, or you work really hard. Those are the sort of like societally accepted ones where you're not going to really run into too much trouble. But that can lead to them lasting for a really long time. Because it when shame is saying there's something wrong with you, and the protective self is trying to prove no, there's not. And rather than sitting with that, there's something wrong with you feeling it's always lost on that hamster wheel of proving there's not something wrong with me. But no matter what you prove or what you do or how perfect you do everything, how you look, um, that feeling, the issue is that it's internal. So it's never going to be enough. Um, nothing that you do is going to make that actually, um, that feeling go away. And until you notice that pattern, it'll kind of just keep happening. I'm wondering, as you were involved in, spre- in, in writing your first book about, you know, the psychopaths, about the, you know, about these t- tremendous, like awful people that wind up, you know, subverting lives and, and causing us heartbreak, and then you're then this book and, and starting this online community. I wonder in 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 doing that early writing, exploring was some of that the protected self in you? Like 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 it, was there a way which which sort of writing about all this stuff and starting an online community and all this stuff was was sort of keeping you from the core self, and then it give giving way to some of the insights that you later came to. Oh, yeah, yeah, big time. Um, I mean, I poured pretty much uh, a good, good chunk of my life after that, um, into the community into writing into 
there is this just like this very heavy focus on analyzing what's wrong with other people, what other people are doing wrong. Um, and in doing so, the whole time, I would always describe this like very vague, numb type feeling in my heart. I had no idea what it was, but it really wasn't bothersome at the time. Um, and I was just kind of going like a million miles an hour, though, with all of that stuff. New communities popping up, new forums, like how can we port this over to the next big thing? And um, when I started switching over to that mindfulness body approach, uh, I found myself dealing with a quite a predicament that I had actually created for myself, which was basically this extremely distracting, extremely sort of dramatic um, world that was really hard to start removing myself from. Um, and I, I still felt that there was a lot of need for um, help and support for people going through these issues. So I, I made very much sure that um, other there were other resources out there that we could direct people to, um, which fortunately there are um, a lot of them out there now. But I, the more and more that I worked on this, the less I felt drawn towards um, that very large world that I had built up. And I found myself just uh, more back to a regular life. I enjoyed just like playing tennis with my friends or playing softball or just kind of you know, enjoying time on my own, getting work done, things like that. Um, and it was much less grand than, uh, than it used to be. And I, I think you'll find a lot of people that are, um, begin going through this healing experience. They find that the old life that they've built up for themselves, um, doesn't really seem to fit anymore. Yeah. I've had the experiences with friends who've been in these weird, bad breakups and they always get stuck in it. Well, they would ask me to help figure out what their former partner was thinking what this boyfriend or girl was thinking and like you can't know that i mean they were being kind of weird who knows i mean there are several but why you, it doesn't matter right it's good it's you're better off not with them now what is this need to understand though but it's this sort of idolatry of information right if i just when really maybe we need something more like imagination you know a more hopeful story like you talk about in the book but it's like if we just get the right information the pain will go away which that's just <laughs> almost never the case right yeah, exactly. And but that's what that protector is trying to do. It's trying to understand like what's wrong with that person that led to this rejection because by focusing on, you know, the bad parts of someone else, we can avoid that feeling of bad self, like something is wrong with me. Um and and I think that slowing down and stopping with the storytelling, stopping trying to understand, you know, someone else's mind and brain because we haven't gotten there technologically yet, maybe some scary day. Um, and just, uh, really just, uh, turning the focus where we actually do have that ability to make a difference, which is, um, in ourselves and the stories that we absorbed after that experience that seem to be harming us. Well, for people that are going through those experiences, I mean, I, I can't think of a better place to point them than to whole again. And I appreciate you, this conversation and just how candid you are about your own story, uh, in the book, you know, being a real wounded healer and, and kind of offering up you know, your own story so that other people can find wholeness in theirs. Thanks, Scott. I really appreciate it. This has been a really cool program. Well, hey, the pleasure was all mine. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great check it out spread the love and goodness if you've found it here also if you could go please 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 it takes like 60 seconds go to itunes and write a review and give it give a rating to the podcast it really really helps especially as things are getting off the ground 
And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Jackson for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Whole Again. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.